so the whole power of privacy behind this is, so, sorry, the point I was trying to make is you can essentially still implement a sort of social credit score system on it, right? Like, you know, through KYC of addresses that I'm sending money to you and uh, you're a domestic terrorist because obviously you know, you're an anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorist. Um, if I'm sending money to you, that's going to negatively affect my social credit score. That's through KYC. That's just way too easy to do. So the whole whole power of privacy in this case is that essentially it becomes totally untrackable. There's no way that they can even know that I'm sending money to you. And one of the important sort of concepts we speak about in the book is the freedom of expression. Like money is expression. We sort of show through uh, what we spend our money and we show our preferences for whether that's what we enjoy to do in our spare time, whether that's, you know, political movements or just everything. But by essentially by evaluating the flows of money into certain areas, we can sort of evaluate what people as a species collectively value or individually value for that matter. So having privacy back in your money, not being able to uh, trace and punish people for what they spend their money on gives us true freedom and autonomy to essentially circumnavigate these, you know, um, authoritarian technologies like CBDC, social credit scores and digital ID. So I think that's the real importance of privacy in this case. And that's kind of how it destroys the, uh, you know, technocracy and global socialist movement. This week on Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero and Bitcoin safely on iOS and Android too. Cake Wallet is open source and you always control your own keys. And by Stealth EX, an instant exchange where privacy is the top concern. Go to StealthEX.io to instantly exchange between Monero and 450 plus assets without having to create an account or register and with no limits. Making Stealth EX a simple way to purchase Monero with crypto anonymously. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever. By typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or Cake Wallet send address field to send us a tip. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman interviews Michael Fitzgerald, a.k.a. Stoic XMR. Stoic is a former Bitcoin maxi turned Monero purist and the author of an upcoming book, The Monero Standard. The book talks about the problematic trends of the world and how Monero is the solution to them. Stoic explains why bringing the work back to money in the way of proof of work is so important, how he hopes to onboard more people onto Monero with his book, the process of writing and publishing a book, and much more. Monero Talk starts now. All right, Stoic, what's going on, man? Not much, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I know it's been. A, I don't think you ever. Did you ever come on and do an official Monero talk? I don't, I don't think you not ever. a Monero talk. I think I've been on a stream or two, a live stream or two. All right, yeah. So we we never had you up on on stage here for an official uh, Monero talk, which is I, I was waiting because I was waiting for I was waiting for the book to come out, which mm-hmm. which it has. Congratulations, yeah. man! Thanks, man. Well, at least it's very close to coming out, anyway. Well, I got a copy, so uh, you got a copy. Yeah, <laughs> my life, it came out. Uh, I know it was a long time in the making. Let let let's go back to that. What what inspired you to write this book in the first place? 
Uh, that's a good question, actually. Um, I'm not sure there was particularly one thing that inspired me. I think it was a whole bunch of sort of events that kind of happened. And there was a moment where it all kind of just came together. And obviously I sort of, what it is, is obviously a pretty big sort of conversation. Um, But it all just came together. And I think the sort of main catalyst for it all coming together was uh, I've, I've been in call it Bitcoin and crypto for quite some time since 2015 odd, but it wasn't until, um, basically only a few years ago that I actually used Monero for the first time. And obviously I've seen the rise of Monero from whatever it was. I, th- I definitely remember it at $3 or something. And I never thought anything of it. It's just, you know, another, another coin. And I wasn't a Bitcoin maxi. I wasn't anything. But then uh, through necessity, and we won't talk about what that was, but I was forced to use Monero. And the transaction, you know, like you do on Bitcoin, right? You um, you go on the block, block Explorer and you see the status of your transaction, make sure it's going through, is it confirmed, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I went on the Monero Block Explorer and obviously nothing comes up, right? And it was a real light bulb moment where I was thinking, hang on, this is... I'm not quite sure of the words for it, but I was thinking this is really what Bitcoin was supposed to be. This was really been in it since, you know, 2015, before anyone knew about Bitcoin. It really was something that was just used on, call it the dark net, and it was something niche and obscure. But it really sort of hit a light bulb when I realized this is what Bitcoin was supposed to be. So when that happened, um, I was at that stage... I will classify myself as Bitcoin maximalist, not a laserized toxic maximalist. I definitely distinguish myself between them, but I was, uh, I would classify myself as a Bitcoin maximalist. And I thought everything I know from Bitcoin, everything I appreciate about Bitcoin, Monero has it. You can argue nuance or whatever, right? Monero has it. Um, and it was really that whole cypherpunk mentalities, which, are, which is what sort of the ethos I was brought up, um, with Bitcoin on that. That's what Monero truly possessed. And that was the real powerful weapon if you will um so was it a was it kind of a a slow realization were you still like a btc maxi for quite some time and just like we're using monero out of necessity or were you like you used it out of necessity and as soon as you did you're like wait a minute it It really only i decided to use monero so um yeah it really only took a few months there was a period of where i was a btc maxi and i wasn't really spending btc it's the whole hodl mentality right but then it was a period of a few months where I was, call it Monero, Monero curious, if you will, just learning more and more and more about Monero. I went through the whole Breaking Monero series by Justin and Sarang and that whole that whole gang trying to really understand the nitty gritty of Monero. Um, and it was a period of a few months and I was actually in hospital at the time. And who knows, maybe it was the incredibly good opiates they gave me for, for painkilling or whatever, right? There, there was a period when I was in the hospital bed and something about that just really inspired me to to write the book, if you will. Something really clicked there, and I was like, "Hang on, this all kind of makes sense." When you when you were on your you were on your hospital bed for what? I I, I, I got to cut along by the uh, the technical issues over here. Yeah, to cut a long story short, I had my third knee reconstruction, so I was in hospital just recovering from that. All right, it was there when you're sitting and thinking that that you you you. You made the final realization that, that Monero is, is, is the one. 
Yeah, that's that's really when it came up, and I, I don't know exactly what it was. Like I say, maybe it was the had the opiates had me feeling good, but even after they wore off, it was still uh, still a realization, if you will. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure exactly what it was, but certainly a light bulb moment happened. And then, so so the book. I mean, did you? Ha- I assume you did most of that research, obviously, before you even started to write the book, right? You were already right, yeah. going down the Monero right. rabbit hole. Right. And, and it was not even a, it's not even necessarily about Monero. Like people ask me what the book's about. And it's not necessarily about Monero. It's kind of about the combination of proof of work and privacy together. So it was a lot of what I've learned about, you know, BTC being proof of work and my sort of cypherpunk ethos previously having a, a necessity for privacy. Um, and just a whole bunch of other things we should talk about in the book, like technocracy, globalism, the history of money, like all that research took thousands and thousands of hours before I even started. Yeah. So when when you set out, I because I, I I like the way you you laid it out, right? You're not like you said you weren't you're not just talking about Monero. In fact, I didn't. I just read the book today. I crammed it today, and it wasn't until the last. I maybe I think mm-hmm. maybe the last three chapters, right, where you really mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. talk about Monero tech. Um, but instead, you you come from a different approach. You really talk about what the problem is in the world and why Monero mm-hmm. is is the solution. So mm-hmm. when when you set out to write the book did you did you already have kind of that the problem in your mind you're like uh we're moving towards one world government monero is a solution or is that something that that evolved as you were sitting and thinking about it and writing yeah so i think um i wouldn't necessarily frame it as we're moving to a one world government as such but the problems and the trends were and are pretty clear in my mind um yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you set out with that in mind. So, yeah. How what how would you describe your thesis as to what the the problem is that essentially Monero is here at the right place in the right time to solve? Yes, I think there's a few main problems. I think we talk about in chapter one, I believe it is. We talk about the history of money to sort of frame up how we got to the position we are in. What I frame up as the fiat Ponzi, which is. Uh, chapter two, which is actually a large part of the book. So, wh- wait, what exactly was the question again? How did I get to it? No, b- basically asking what what is the problem that Monero right. is solving? Right. I mean, you talk about globalism. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So yeah. So the first problem I sort of frame up is the Fiat Ponzi, which I don't know how much sort of detail we want to get into, but at its core the main premise or the main principle that's been lost is work. And that's where sort of proof of work comes back into it. So money at its core, like I say, is work. The value of everything in the world is derived from how hard it is to create more of it. So if you have a monetary supply of, let's just use sand as a, as an example. So you have one grain of sand is the entire monetary principle, uh, entire monetary uh, supply, right? Then if uh, considering sand's pretty easy to obtain, somebody goes out with a shovel, picks up a billion bits of sand, they've obviously increased the monetary supply by quite a, quite a margin without having to have any or much work at all, you know, just one shovel, for example. So the other side of that is um, you have something like gold uh, where you actually have to expend large amounts of real-world resources. It's obviously a lot more finite than sand. So the problem we come into with the fiat monetary system today is the creation of money is become far too easy. It's, it's become arbitrary, which is a very big problem, but it's also become far too easy. There's not much work required to create more. The concept of proof of work 
to have the money as you've proved that you've committed the resources to it has been totally lost. Um, so bringing proof of work as a principle back into money is something that as we explore in chapter five has a whole, whole range of very positive consequences for which, and which, so, you know, in a way in which society in ways that probably most people can't imagine is totally reshaped, whether that be just from something as obvious as, you know, uh, taking the money, money out of the, sorry, taking the monetary supply out of the hands of probably who, who I would call psychopaths all the way to environmental sort of consequences. We are not able to subsidize these, you know, high, high waste, toxic waste industries like plastics and uh, fuels and all that kind of stuff. Um, so to essentially put proof of work back into money puts consequences back into money as well. So those consequences are directly tied to those people who have to expend their finite resources in order to obtain something. So if you're going to have a finite amount of resources, which we all do, you're incentivized naturally to use them in an efficient way. But with the fiat monetary system, we're able to get away with making inefficient, bad decisions and then uh, being able to make up or I suppose uh, you don't have to feel the consequences of your decisions since you're able to just print your way out of uh, trouble at the expense of everybody else, which is again, a real problem. The sort of second, um, second and third problems that I frame up, I'd probably classify them as one problem together is the sort of uh, socialism or global socialism and technocracy that seems, you know, to be coming at a very rapid rate. We see every day, you know, CBDCs and, Geez, I mean, look at WorldCoin, you know, that's just a step in the direction of digital IDs. We're going to see, obviously, in China, social credit scores. I think what will probably happen in the West is a carbon credit score system. There seems to be more of an overall environmentally friendly, if you want to call that sort of environmental push in which way that most people will just accept, okay, you know, we do have to, we do have to save the world and, you know, having this carbon credit score in place you know, will help or at least incentivize people to make, you know, environmentally friendly decisions. But it's actually a social credit score system masked, if you will. So to frame it up incredibly simply, as I mentioned before, proof of work and privacy. So proof of work is something that brings consequences back into money. So it's able to essentially destroy the whole fiat system. And privacy is a way we, which seemingly, in my opinion, will be absolutely necessary for the world we're moving into, this increasingly technocratic world with digital IDs, CBDCs, and social credit scores, among many other things. You know, we see things evolve every single day. Yeah, no, I, I, think, you did, I think you did a great job um, just going back to, you know, the, the first issue, right, is the problem, right, which is the fiat Ponzi. Um, yeah, I think you did a great job in explaining uh, number one, explaining the history. I think you did a good job with that. You kept it very simple. Overall, the book, I think you, you, you know, and I think you obviously were going for this. You kept it very simple, right? You want, you didn't go very deep into any one topic, but almost kind of in outline form, you took the reader through the process of why, why we have a problem in the first place. The Fiat Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Once again, I think you, you did a great job at going through the history. Um, talking about, you know, kind of the, the main historic events that happened that created the Fiat Ponzi in the first place. 
Um, and then I think you, you did a great job in talking about, yeah, the, the ultimately the effects, right? Not, not just like the, the things that people usually mention as being the obvious effects, which is our, the value that we have, the money that we have in our banks and our pockets is, is going down in value every day because, because of the fiat. But the effects of what a, what a fiat system does to society beyond stealing wealth, it's, not, it's, it's, much, it's much worse than that, right? It's, it's a true cancer on, on free and open societies. And it's just eating, eating at our core. And if right. we can somehow get rid of it, uh, it, I mean, I hate to use the word utopia, but the thing will will trend towards a, a more truly. Uh, I don't know. How would you explain it? We, we, there'd be more, ultimately, more liberty per per individual, right? There would be. Yeah, the the way I frame it up is uh, freedom and prosperity, which proof of work and privacy really builds that base layer for a truly free and truly prosperous society. And the importance of which I could really bang on. And my girlfriend knows I bang up on about it for hours, but the importance of which is it really enables obviously every single person to live the life that they choose. It doesn't allow, you know, some sort of, um, this, uh, world where what's, what's the saying? It's, um, the road to hell is paved by good intentions. It no longer, it no longer enables a world like that. It allows each citizen, each person to uh, live the life and whether that's business ventures or personal activities or whatever that they see fit. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, the opposite of, of communism at the end of the day, right? right? It's, it allow it allows for pure individuality, uh, but for right. people to live in a society together, but to somehow maintain their their independence and individuality, right? And I, th- I think you do a good job at getting to that point, which is obviously it's it's a hard arc to follow because you have to start from from the very beginning. Um, how how did you go about you know writing up the Fiat Ponzi? I mean, I must have required a bunch of a bunch of research. How are you uh, able to, you know? Yeah, good question. Good question. It was it was so. I did it generally speaking in chronological order, but I didn't follow it strictly. For example, I think I did a little bit of the history of money first and had a whole bunch of ideas that were just coming to my head about the Fiat Ponzi. So I really needed to get that out on paper. So point being, it was a while ago. It was probably certainly around about a year ago that I was writing it, at least that chapter. So the Fiat Ponzi, um, I, I really couldn't tell you how I came to write it, like what structure I followed to write it. I think I just did a whole bunch of writing down what I knew. Um, and there was definitely research involved, especially regarding specifics. So that specific dates, like what date did Nixon take the, um, what do you call it? What, what off the gold standard, right? right. What date did he take it off the gold standard? So little things like that, mm-hmm. but a lot of the actual chapter itself without rereading it was just sort of what I already knew, so to say. Sure. Um, yeah. Especially be, being in this in this cryptocurrency world, right? And as a as a big uh, once a BTC maxi, right? Th- these are lessons yeah, right. that you are constantly putting out there. But I think you did a, you did a really good job summarizing it. I, you know, right. like, and that was that was the kind of point of it, I suppose. Like the thing where you might have spoke to family members um, or friends or just complete randoms, you start to see you know the eyes roll like. This is too complicated. He's talking about it again. Can this guy just be quiet, you know, without trying to swear? Um, So the whole point of the book was really try to frame it up in a simple way where 
everybody could read it because I feel like this information is really incredibly important for everybody to understand. Like I think a lot of the problems we see in society are a consequence of people not understanding this information. So I think to frame it up in a way that everybody can understand is one obviously makes it more readable, but two, it's, it's in my vision, sorry, in my opinion, very important for society to actually understand this information. That's the only way to get it out there. Yeah, like I said, I read it in a day, but obviously, you know, I know the topics very well, so I was able to read it fast. But um, it, you know, it's yeah, it's something I could easily give to uh, you know a family member that I I may have mentioned the word Monero a million times, but I just you know sit down when you when you have a moment, Mm -hmm. start reading this book, and and you'll understand the why, why this, why why it all even matters, and why Monero Mm -hmm. is is the solution. Um, And then, yeah, like you said, then you pointed out the second thing, so. The Fiat Ponzi, obviously, and then the, um, what you call, technocracy and globalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought you did. I thought you did a really good job with that as well. And that, I do think, is really going to capture the average Joe as well. Because everybody's mm-hmm. living this now. They're seeing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't just sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist. And you go out of your way, is like saying that multiple times, like, I hope I don't sound like a, like a, like a crazy guy right now, uh, or I'm not going to go into this deeper because I don't want you to start accusing me of being some kind of, you know, right wing right. conspiracy theorist. But let's just state the facts here. And, yeah, right. And that's what you proceed to do. And it's pretty scary when you when you see all the facts laid out of how we are very clearly transitioning, uh, you know, moving towards one world government or you want to say uh, a global technocracy controlled by a few that are at the, at the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was impressed by that. I thought it was good. And I, I think, um, I think people are going to really grab onto that and start to think, yeah, how do we, how do we prevent this? And so yeah. you, you, that- you, obviously you, you list Monero as being the solution. So in, in your heart of hearts, is that what you're, is that what you're really thinking? Do you think like Monero is one of the key things that will prevent this? Of course, man. I wouldn't have bothered writing the book if I didn't believe it. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm not the kind of guy to, well, obviously what Bitcoiners would call grifting or scamming, as we can sort of refer to a lot of proof of stake pre-mined chains. But if I didn't truly believe it, of course, I wouldn't have written it. Yeah, I have, you know, I tend to agree with you, obviously. (laughs) But it's, uh, it's, a lot of people think it's crazy. I mean, so why don't you go ahead and explain explain why do you think it is the solution to to that problem, right? So Fiat Ponzi, I think we've we've heard that explained in, in the Bitcoin standard. I think that mm-hmm. argument we make here for Monero is is very similar. But this mm-hmm. other problem you're talking about, which is preventing technocracy and globalism, why why is the Monero the solution there? Yeah, so a lot of their openly stated goals, and like I say, this, these are not so-called you know right-wing conspiracies or whatever right these are what they say that is what's on their websites what comes out of their mouth that they say they want to implement these um these agendas that they want to implement are really social credit scores digital ids cbdc's all in not specifically in that order though so when you look at at its core when you look at these technologies they're very invasive technologies. They require a lot of information about you. They require a lot of control. They ultimately end in a lot of control over you, whether that's CBDCs and being able to 
you know, control your money, what you can spend it on. One day, if you want to go to a protest, but they find out you're going to protest, well, you can't spend money on your train ticket. You can't spend money on petrol or whatever the case, right? Um, so that's a limiting factor. Same with social credit scores we see already in China. Essentially becomes linked to a digital ID, becomes a movement license. So the question I ask myself, again, short of, Everybody, for lack of a better word, everybody waking up and realizing and just choosing to opt out of the system. What is the system or what is the technology that everyone can use to protect themselves? And at the end of the day, that is a privacy technology. So the real power that goes back to the people is if someone essentially, and this is an old Bitcoin argument, right? If someone can't control your money, then they essentially can't control you. You have uh, autonomy back over your life. But the thing about Bitcoin and why I think privacy is so important is Bitcoin can essentially be used on a social credit score system since a vast majority of addresses are KYC, if not all uh, addresses are KYC. And moving into a mass adoption future, um, I mean, what's the number? I think at least 90, 95% of people, as we saw with vax rates, would do exactly what the government tells them. So if the government says you have to get your BTC from this KYC vendor or you have to get your paper BTC, kind of like a um, a fake BTC, if you will, um, people are just going to follow that, right? So the whole power of privacy behind this is, sorry, the point I was trying to make is you can essentially still implement a sort of social credit score system on it, right? Like, you know, through KYC of addresses that I'm sending money to you and uh, you're a domestic terrorist because obviously you're an anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorist. Um, If I'm sending money to you, that's going to negatively affect my social credit score. That's through KYC. That's just way too easy to do. So the whole, whole power of privacy in this case is that essentially it becomes totally untrackable. There's no way that they can even know that I'm sending money to you. And one of the important sort of concepts we speak about in the book is the freedom of expression. Like money is expression. We sort of show through uh, what we spend our money and we show our preferences for whether that's what we enjoy to do in our spare time, whether that's, you know, political movements or just everything. But by essentially by evaluating the flows of money into certain areas, we can sort of, evaluate what people as a species collectively value or individually value for that matter. So having privacy back in your money, not being able to uh, trace and punish people for what they spend their money on gives us true freedom and autonomy to essentially circumnavigate these, you know, um, authoritarian technologies like CBDC, social credit scores and digital ID. So I think that's the real importance of privacy in this case. And that's kind of how it destroys the, uh, you know, technocracy and global socialist movement. Yeah. I mean, obviously I couldn't agree more once again. I, I, think, I think, you know, I, as I read it, I was, I was, yeah, 100%. I, I like this sounds familiar. I feel, I've, I've I've heard this before. Uh which by the way, yeah, at the end I noticed you you called out a lot of people that helped you along the way. Th- thanks for mentioning right. my name. I appreciate that. that, that of course, that man. Thanks for helping me. 
that put a big smile <laughs> on your face. Um, and I saw you had Tony mentioned as as number one. That's going to make him right. a very very happy guy. What role did Tony play in helping you do this? Uh, what was what was the role? Tony, of yeah, Tony was uh, a good support sort of the whole way, kind of like a, a morale booster or a someone who. I wouldn't say Tony inspired me, but Tony kept the motivation high and Tony yeah, inspired good, me in a sense. He's good at that. Know. He's good at that. He got us going he with is. the second Monero after the first Monero Topia. Sunit and I were kind of like burnt and he like it was it was through his motivate, you know, uh egging us on that we, we yep. kicked into gear to throw the second one. He, he's I would say motivated. I would say right. I would say Tony was my first Monero friend. So Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then you call out a lot of other people, which which is really which is really nice. People people will see that. Uh, and I saw I saw Cake. I guess they spot they sponsored the book. You have yeah. um, you have two sponsors, right? You have Cake and right Neil Capital, which is uh, we've seen them. That's yeah. them. Yeah, and that man, they were a massive help. You know, but by sponsoring the book, obviously being able to put that money into what will become advertising when the book's ready and all that kind of stuff. I think those sort of contributions naturally really help the reach of not only the book, you know, for what it's worth, F the book, you know, but actually Monero as a whole and freedom and prosperity as a whole. Do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans. And if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the Guatemalan farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, Gratuitous, and Monero. Are you seeing some good sales? Did you get a lot of pre-sales? Uh, roughly between 175 and 200 so far. So, And I'd say 90% of those were around December, January. And at, to, truth be told, I actually really wanted to have the book out many months ago now. Um, so I had, I wouldn't call it a whole plan, but I had sort of an idea of a pre-sale leading up to the book and the book being out, you know, many months ago now. Um, so yeah, I, I totally expect that when the book comes out, when the people actually know the book exists, for mm-hmm. example, it's not some, you know, rug pull that, and, you know, word starts to get around that it's a good book. I expect sales to sort of go up. But, again, that's not really the point of it. The sale to me is more importantly that the message is getting out there in some shape or form. Yeah, no, we're, we'll, we'll all be rooting for sales. Uh, it's right. not that Stoic is selling more books. It's that Monero is spreading, <laughs> right? Um, which is which is amazing. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, anybody that's listening to this, help help get the word out, spread it out. I think it's, it's a great little little manual book for people people to really get to know to get to know Monero and yeah you compare it to like say zero zero to Monero which is very highly technical um right. and then the other one what was it? a mastering Monero right also maybe a little bit more technical right for sure uh, and like I said I think what really differentiates here is is you really talk about the why a lot you know a lot more than than anybody is uh, mm-hmm. really put into words with regards to Monero so that's mm-hmm. great um, I'm, I'm looking, uh, let me see. Oh, one of the things I thought, did, cause I know you mentioned, you went through at the end and you talked about how all money goes through these stages of first being a collectible mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. uh, 
what is it eventually being used as a unit of account, right? Kind of the, the final. Right. Um, what do you think of this idea of Monero just having some actual base utility as opposed to, say, Bitcoin, right? Because of its privacy and your ability to, it allows you to do something you're, you're not able to do otherwise, which is send money anonymously through the internet. Um, what, just like to hear your thought, do you think that kind of gives it a base utility? Would you think of it in those terms? Because, uh, I mean, even like a Peter Schiff, right, might argue that gold, the difference between gold, one of the differences between gold and Bitcoin is, you know, gold actually has some, in his mind, has some like base utility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think he had even made a comment once that like, when Bitcoin doesn't, and I think he had even said like, it's not even, uh, you can't even launder money through it, for example, mm-hmm. like. We thought you could use it for that, and you can't even use it for that. I'm just curious, do you kind of see things that way? Does Monero perhaps have some kind of base utility? I actually do, believe it or not, think that has base utility. I think that base utility, um, with everything else in the world extinguished, the base utility for Monero would be, and I, I make a big distinction between sort of immoral and wrong activities and illegal activities. So, just because something is legal or illegal doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It just means that it's the consequence of the political system we have. So that can be something as victimless as, say, for example, the the dark net. So we've seen we have seen a clear trend moving away from Bitcoin. Only really honeypots accept certainly only honeypots accept Bitcoin only, and most markets are accepting either Monero only or Bitcoin and Monero at this point. So the, the trend is obviously very clear from a Bitcoin-only marketplace to a Monero-only marketplace. So I think at its core, I mean, the worst-case scenario is Monero will always have the demand for illegal activities, if you will. So I was actually talking about this yesterday. The thing is, even if they ban Monero, it doesn't change human nature. People still don't want Monero. They need Monero. There's, that's a big distinction between it. When it's the only option to achieve whatever you want to achieve, people absolutely need it. And again, moving into this technocratic socialist sort of uh, world that we're moving into, that's a base utility. We absolutely need it. There's no other option. You can argue Zcash is a whole lot of nuance or other privacy coins or whatever, but privacy is an actual concept is completely not negotiable. And that's not for, again, as I say, that's not for people who like myself want privacy, who, see uh, see privacy as a good thing to strive for. That's people, sorry, that's for people who have no other choice and absolutely need Monero because Bitcoin and other terms, other sorts of money not serving their, um, their, their goals, if you will. They're not helping them achieve those goals. Yeah. And that's why, uh, you know, it's, it's literally the Monero standard, right? It's, um, it's going to serve as a, as a core utility. Or, or already is and will continue to. Um, how do you think your book compares to the Bitcoin standard? Did you read the Bitcoin standard? I read the Bitcoin standard a few years ago now. I think I read the Bitcoin standard at the start of 2021. Um, by the time I started re- writing the book, which I believe was like May last year, you know, life goes on. You don't retain all the information. I can't say that I actually remember. I remember some core sort of principles about the, uh, sorry, about the Bitcoin standard, but I purposely, I actually, I started, when I started writing, I thought I have to read the Bitcoin standard before I finish just to sort of make sure I'm covering all the things. But as time went on, I sort of thought that 
I need to not read the Bitcoin standard to try and not copy the Bitcoin standard because it's right. you don't want to become, yeah make a remake. As yeah. much as I make like making Maxi's salty, yeah, I really didn't want to make a remake of it. Yeah, I mean, it could literally just be the Bitcoin standard plus a chapter on fungibility, and it's like right. <laughs> there's, there's Monero, right? Yeah, totally. No, you, no, you you didn't take that approach, which is which is good. In fact, I mean, fungibility obviously you talk about it quite a bit, but it's not mm. it's not the only. You're not just saying Monero yeah. is fungible, Bitcoin isn't. That's why it's yeah. the, the Monero standard. Um, yeah. That wouldn't have made for the for the best read either, and so I, I I think I think it's I think it's compelling the way you the way you put it together. Um, let's see, let's let's look at some of your. I guess what were some of, what were some of the biggest challenges with writing the book? I mean, it's it's not this is the I'm assuming this is the first time you ever wrote a wrote a wrote, took like wrote a book other than you know yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. writing papers for school or something. I mean, I have to imagine it's your first. No, totally. It is. This yeah. is by far, by at least a hundred x, the longest thing I've ever written. Um, so, was there a process of just learning how to write a book, or you're just like, no, screw it. I'm so, when when I started writing the book again, when I was in hospital, feeling great about life, I was thinking, you know, how hard can it be to write a book? All I have to do mm-hmm. is write the book, maybe design a cover or whatever, and then print it, and it'll be so easy. And that's how you do it, right? And then since, and especially right now, actually. Um, the book really, I mean, genuinely forget the research took hundreds of hours of just writing alone and then include the research into it. But most of that again was pre-research that took, you know, easily into thousands of hours. Um, but it is, I not sound silly, uh, but I think people who have written books will understand what I'm talking about. You still actually have to turn up and write the book, you know, like it still takes hundreds of hours of pulling your hair out and um, doting over, you know, frame it this way, frame it that way, which I did many times, especially in um, chapter three of the the technocracy. And no, sorry, chapter four, which is technocracy and globalism, Um, you know, trying not to frame it up as a, as you said, a, a right wing conspiracy theorist. But honestly, the most trouble I've had is what I'm having now with dealing with the publishers, for example, I actually was saying the other day, like, I wish I made a list of everything that's kind of gone wrong during, because you kind of think, oh, okay, especially coming from such a simplistic view of, all right, and I'll print it, it'll be good. You kind of come one hurdle and it's like, oh, well, that's the hurdle and the rest will be easy, you know. So I, I wish I actually made a list of every problem that I incurred along the way, because there was many. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but right now dealing with the publishers, and again, without sounding like um, whingy, which I probably will if I mention it, but dealing with the publishers is probably the hardest part of it. Um, What's so difficult with that? What's going on with the publishers? Yeah, you wouldn't think you wouldn't think it was difficult. Just a lot of sort of formatting stuff, and they one ha- I'm not a publisher. Two haven't written the book before, so next time I go and do it, it'll probably be a lot easier because I know what to do and how to use the website and what this means and whatever. But there's a whole bunch of how you got to format the cover, how you have to format the book. Um, I'm actually meeting out with a Monero guy, Monero bro. You've had him on the show. Um, I won't dox him just for the sake of good privacy, but I'm meeting out with him tonight. He's a, um, by coincidence, works as, I think he said, a web developer, so he understands the jargon that they were using. This is the problem. Something to do with CSS error. I don't know what that means, you know. So that's for the ebook. So he's going to reformat that. And, again, getting it into the right format is um, 
Yeah, a lot harder than you expect, just little things like exporting it into PDF, but then the PDF comes up in half the page. Instead of like making the page smaller, it just like shrinks the page. So when you upload it to the thing, you can still come up with that. It's like imagine an A4 page with just a segment of gray on it. So little little things like that, not not knowing um, how to do it. I mean, even things, you know, like how wide do I make the spine? You know what I mean? They don't tell you how wide to make the spine. So then you have to go on. If it wasn't for this guy that I'm meeting with tonight, man, this would be a lot harder than it is. <laughs> I, I, I honestly can't even begin to explain how, like, tedious some of the crap is, you know. Like, you have to spend an hour just to figure out, more than an hour just to figure out how wide the book is, you know. Yeah, yeah. So then, so beyond just writing the book, you're saying the technicals of putting it together and getting it printed and all, and all that jazz. It's yep. probably the hardest part, yeah. I'd say the writing was almost the easy part. <laughs> and so did you figure that out? Are, are the books ready to be printed? No, that, that's the thing. Is So okay. the ebooks are obviously ready. I sent you one. I have that in uh, obviously PDF, EPUB, and what's the other format? I forget the, the name of the other format. So I have the ebooks already. The – oh, yeah, so want to go into – to really bore the audience here. So with the uploading, you have to upload a hardcover because obviously different spine links and all that kind of stuff. You have to upload the hardcover, the paperback. But I'm doing a situation, obviously not having done it before, where I upload the hardcover and then they have an option for ebook and book. So I'm doing the paperback, excuse me, I'm doing the paperback and the ebook sort of on one submission, if you will. So the paperback is, I think, good for what it's worth. It came up with some basic errors, like um, I think the resolution was too low, I believe. So uh, the friend tonight's going to help me with making the resolution high, which I don't believe is a difficult problem to fix. At least he says not a difficult problem to fix. But then submitting them together, the main problem again comes from the ebook and the submit can't submit the paperback until the ebook is done because it's the same submission. So this whole, I mean just developer jargon that just doesn't make any sense to me is really what's holding up the submission of that short of that um again going through the website trying to use the publisher's website especially when you haven't used it before submitting the hardcover so little did i know at the time because i hadn't actually finished the book at the time when i started uh uploading making the submission for it if you click something at the start so yes you have got it already or no you don't have it all ready there's a whole different process for all that kind of stuff so if i had it ready it would probably be so i was actually at the point last night where i was submitting the paperback and the ebook together because the ebook problems blah 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 didn't happen so now that i can have at least the paperback version sorted and i know that if you click yes everything's ready that's a whole lot easier than doing no it's not ready and you have to sort of have everything approved later on like the size you cover and all that kind of stuff it's not auto approved so I'll probably delete that hardcover submission, start a new hardcover submission, which should just fly through. Probably won't, but hopefully it does. Um, so that's really where it's at. So like I say, it's it's. I really could it, make an entire list. How does it work with the public? Like what's the business model with the publishers? How does that work? Yeah, so if anyone knows Ingram Spark, that's who I'm using. So it's actually, in <laughs> my opinion, a good sort of service to you. So what the, the way Ingram Spark works is they basically... You submit the book and they have their whole distribution channel. So there's only um, 
trying to think of some American versions. We have Booktopia in Australia, which is a large online book retailer. I think you guys have something. It, it's very similar to Amazon. So they listed on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Booktopia. We have local bookshops like uh, I think it's called Angus and Robertson. So they have a whole network around the world of um, book distributors. So you upload it to there and they make it available to all these book distributors. So mm. probably the most advantageous is Amazon. So people can uh, buy the book in fiat. So you upload it to them, they list it and they essentially print it and ship it wherever it needs to be shipped. Obviously as Amazon does sort of print on demand, mm. but they organize that sort of stuff with their global network of um, book distributors. So it seems very advantageous, you know, being able to just access a, for a, what is actually a pretty reason, like it's not like they're charging an exorbitant fee to print the book. Like it's actually pretty reasonable, like what you'd expect from a, um, you know, uh, sort of mass quantities. The the price is sort of similar because they are printing mass quantities at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So the service itself seems like pretty good, but actually uploading to the publisher, getting it from the point of, okay, I have it on my computer to they essentially have it in the store or on their website is by far a lot harder than I was expecting. And I'm sure it's a lot harder than most people would expect. But again, like I say, going into writing a book next time, I know exactly which way to do it, which buttons to click, how to format all that kind of stuff. So that, that should be a whole lot easier. Where can people buy your book with Monero? So you can get it with Monero on my website, uh, on the website, I should say, uh, www.monerostandard.com. You can pay for that with Monero. You can pay with Bitcoin. Basically, all the proof of work coins. So I have Dogecoin, Litecoin, uh, Zcash as well. Um, I think there's oh, the only proof of stake coin except is Ethereum. So um, that's obviously because of the large network effects of Ethereum. So um, that's where you can get it with crypto. And again, if you want to pay for it with fiat, I've been trying to work on a fiat gateway, but it's one of those things, you know, life goes on. You have a lot of things. I work full time, you know, you have things to do. It's very yeah, hard to just be able to do everything. Um, all at once I've been working on a fiat gateway. Um, but I think it's almost just easier to do it all through Amazon. So I'm thinking I'll just sense. do that all through. Yeah. And then they can deal with the printing and all that kind of stuff. So. And the, the price will be the same, whether you buy it on Amazon or your website. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it will. I'm actually thinking about doing a Monero discount, uh, but I haven't really come to a final conclusion on that one yet. Maybe 10 or 20%, something like that. But when I was actually um, sort of pricing the book at the start, because this is the first book I've uh, written, I didn't even know about Ingram Spark at the time. So I was sort of pricing on, um, you know, essentially having to have them all printed shipped to different locations. So I asked Yuri in Europe if he could help. I asked, I think, Tony in America if he could help. I was going to do it in Australia. I think I was in Mexico at the time, so I asked my parents if they would do it in Australia. So I sort of priced it based on what it would cost to have a printer in Australia, have a printer in America, Europe, etc., and then the distribution costs based on that. But with this uh, whole Ingram Spark Amazon thing, it seems to be a whole lot, one, easier and cheaper. So I was thinking about, bringing the price down permanently to the pre-sale price. Uh, because again, the whole point is, I, I don't care about making money. The whole point is about, you know, spreading the message. So obviously the cheaper the book is, the more people can buy it or more people will buy it based on basic supply and demand principles, right? Um, what is the price? I don't even know. So the, uh, I'd have to have a look actually, but I believe the price for the hardcover is I think forty four ninety five because when I was looking at printing was, 
very expensive to get a color hardcover uh, version, basically. And the paperback version is, I believe, nineteen ninety five. These are all US dollars, by the way. And the ebook, I believe, is seven ninety five. Okay. Yeah. You got you to make money, man. You got you got you to make it worth your time too, you know. And then that will give you the capital. Kind to, of. To work I look on. at it in. No, that's true enough. But I kind of look at it as an investment of time in the same sense. Not, I mean, getting the book out there is sort of an achievement within itself. But then the network effects over the next couple of years of people. It sound might sound vain, but people knowing who I am. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. There's, there's value in just you being the guy known for writing. Yeah. The Monero standard, yeah. of course, of course. Right, right. Uh, were, there, were there things that you left out of the book that you were like, you were consciously or like, you, know, you were going to put it in there? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, are, are there things that you wish that you were like, oh, I was going to add it, but it was going to get a little too crazy. You didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. So there was a lot of times where I was sort of thinking, should I have this? Shouldn't I have this? Um, I got my dad to proofread it, who for obviously no one listening would know my dad, but for anyone who does, he is pretty much as normie as they come, um, watches the news and all these kind of things just, you know, takes in or what I call the fiat media. Um, but anyway, I, I got him to read it, read it. And he, he sort of said like, this sounds a little bit like this, or this sounds a little bit like that. And so when I went back and sort of proofread the book after that, I did take out some things and it wasn't even necessarily the things that he said, sounds like this, sounds like that. Um, but there were some things, like I think I had something about uh, JFK in there and sort of relating that to the to the monetary system and how he got assassinated. I sort of took that kind of stuff yeah, out. Yeah, you still left like a reference to it, but you're like, I don't want to go. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Reference without going down the rabbit hole. Okay. There was, and especially in uh, the technocracy and globalism chapter, because again, when I wrote it, I was sort of thinking, well, again, for some people who have written books before, you realize when you come in one day, you come in the next day, you come in the next week after that, and the next month after that, you're always in a different mood, if you will. You always have a sort of different beat to yourself. So what you might feel one day, a certain way you might feel right in one, one way, you just by nature won't feel it the next day. So sort of coming back after everything is said and done, I don't think I wrote much on it for about a month at that point in time. I sort of reread uh, some parts of it and I thought, could this be construed? And I think I'd actually just been hanging out with a few normally family members at that point in time. So I thought, could this be construed as this way? And I can understand because I understand the mood I was in at the time when I was writing it, that it's sort of written in a, a different way than what someone might perceive it, especially on... Uh, piece of paper you can't sort of translate tone through a piece of paper so I, I did take out a few things in that regards but overall it was mainly just refining things that took a bit of time there were many many times many many times and still I get these times where I think should I should I have oh I should have added that and there were many times where I actually had to go back to the drawing board to add in especially in regards to that last uh, sorry in the last chapter especially in regards to chapter five regarding proof of work and privacy as a basis for money. I uh, saw so a lot of the effects of that. And I, I mentioned in the book, um, you've had him on the show before, Alex Svetsky. I think Alex Svetsky is kind of like the king of proof of work. I think the way Svetsky describes a lot of uh, sort of philosophical points about proof of work is really unparalleled. So as, as a sort of um, search for ideas, there was a lot of, 
uh, going back to that chapter, chapter five, which I actually think is the best chapter in the book and probably the most pointful chapter in the book. I had to go back to the drawing board and sort of reframe a lot of those and add a lot of things in that way. Sort of, you know, those things that hit you in the middle of the night where you just, there's a light bulb moment in the middle of the night. I had a lot of those while I was writing. So, What do you think uh, Svetsky would say about your book? What do you think his, his response would be? You know, um, I, I thought think... it was a show, obviously. I, I kind of already, you know, I know, I know what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. I, I think we're thinking pretty similarly to, as to what Svetsky would think. I think it's pretty obvious as to what Svetsky would think about the book. Um, I actually had a space with Svetsky. I invited him on space in last December. And I, I don't think he noticed, but I, I kind of got him subtly to admit that the real innovation behind Bitcoin was proof of work. It's not that it's uh, a limited supplier and not limited supply, as he's obviously made the case by uh, Bitcoin maxis. But it's actually proof of work, the concept of proof of work, bringing that back into money that creates, one, creates value, and two, fixes many of the problems we see in society today. Right. He, he's hung up on the 21 mil, right? Like that's his... Right. Like a lot of Bitcoin maxis, right? Yeah, yeah. So look, I would hope Svetsky likes it. I'm actually going to do a podcast episode with Svetsky sometime in the near future. Okay. Uh, um, so I would hope he likes it, um, but whatever, right? You know, it's I forget. Yeah, Bitcoin what were his main, his main criticisms of? Mon- I guess his main criticism of Monero is just that Bitcoin exists already and it's got the network effect, right? I mean, it's like kind of his. Yeah, you'd have to ask him. Um, but yeah, from my understanding, yeah, 21 million Bitcoin exists, and yeah. Yeah. Sort of the main stuff you hear from a lot of maxis. Yeah, you did a, you did a, a good job too, right? That's one of your chapters too. I think you talked about like the criticisms of like the main primary criticisms of Monero, right? That yeah. Addressing the FUD. Yeah, yeah, just addressing the FUD. I think I think you did a good good job of that. Once again, short and sweet. You didn't make it mm-hmm. make it too long. Yeah. Uh, do you see this being an evolving book? Like you're going to come out with a versions every couple of years because uh, obviously there's you know like we're saying you, you we really didn't go too deep on the technical level are you going to try to add things as you go or uh, too soon yeah. no I, I probably will i've thought about that question i probably will make certain editions of the book um i'm sort of calling this the cypherpunk edition if you will so the version for the real og because that's obviously the immediate crowd that's going to reach but you know things evolve as time goes on um I have thought about the question and I probably will make certain additions and certain refines refinements, if that's even a word as time goes on. Yeah. I like you, man. You, you asked me at the, at the onset, do I like, it? I thought, I, th- I think you did a good job. I think you did a good job. You know, you took, that was a, a risky endeavor, right? Not so much writing a book, but having, putting it out there as the Monero standard, right? You had, you had to live up to that title and be able to be able to bring the argument. And I, th- yeah. I, think, I think you accomplished that. So. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, it it yeah. was, um, yeah, I think probably the most scary part about doing most things publicly in the world is having the entire, it open for the entire world to criticize what you're doing. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll get plenty of criticism. I will say like I found, you know, keep, keep reading it, proofreading it. I found, I found some stuff in there. I didn't jot it down because I was trying to read it as fast as I can. So mm-hmm. obviously keep proofreading it. I'm sure people will find things. And then I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll get criticisms with, you know, some of the things you're just saying like factually, um, with technocracy and global globalization, right? You know, people might, 
I don't know. They might point out things, but I think overall it's it's pretty accurate. You're just you're, you're stating the facts there. And I think um, the great thing about some criticism too is probably uh, certainly some of the criticism will be really constructive and good criticism. So, I you should add this or take this out and sort of it's um, obviously very hard to think of everything in the world by yourself, which is impossible. So having other people criticize what you do is you know just a natural part of making something better. Yeah, of course, of course. What did you what did you use as your resources to write up your your kind of your globalization thesis? Because I think I thought you did a good job on that. You simplified it. You know, I think a lot of people just kind of talk about it, but you you laid it all out. I like I like the pyramid that you that you showed with the different levels of the, basically the different organizations that are that are involved from top yeah. to bottom. Yeah, so that actual pyramid is something I made myself. Um, oh, a lot okay. of the resources. Yeah, a lot of the resources came from people like Whitney Webb, uh, who I think does a great job of framing up the sort of, call it a global pyramid of control. That's probably going to, not good for the algorithm, so to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think a lot of it is really, you're not leaving much to speculation because a lot of it just comes out of their mouth. Um, for example, like the agendas that they've stated are not like, we're not theorizing about anything, right? Like they've openly stated these many, many times. I mean, Mm -hmm. the great reset being one, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. These are not like us saying they want us to eat bugs. They want us to have nothing. Like they're saying this, you know what I mean? Right. You're taking it from their papers, from the things. Right. Yeah. So a lot of the resources itself kind of come from their mouth, but in terms of framing up the, that specific one, yeah, was Whitney Webb, uh, I'm actually reading a book right now, which really backs that up, which is kind of um, uh, good, if you know what I mean. It kind of give me some, maybe it's confirmation bias, I don't know, but it gives me some confirmation that I was at least on the right path, which is the uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins, if you know it. Oh, okay, I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Yeah, fantastic read. I think they should make a movie out of it. Um, and it really talks about the way that US policy is distributed throughout the world in this case and sort of this globalist agenda of policies is distributed throughout the world. Yeah. I think, I think you did a, I think you did a good job on that. It would be cool if people, maybe you add a way for people to donate. So to make somebody's purchase cheaper, I don't know, I'm just throwing ideas out yeah. there, right? Like buy, no, that's buy, true. buy a noob, uh, a Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin standard, yeah, yeah, yeah. narrow standard book. Um, no, that's a good, good idea. That that could be um, cool. Make some sort of community fund. Yeah, because a lot of people just want to help spread it, help help get it into the hands of those that really yeah. don't know anything about Monero yet. Yeah. But even if you already know about Monero, I, I recommend it, checking it out, um, reading it, and it kind of crystallizes everything for you. It doesn't go into su- super detail, but it's 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 a good read. It reminds us all why why we're here and why we're excited about Monero. Right. Um. Any any other info you want to put out there, man? We're at we're at about an hour. Anything? You yeah, want to- I mean, as I was saying before the show, I can kind of rant for hours. It's just as to what people will put up with listening on the podcast. You know? <laughs> well, I didn't want I didn't want us to give away the whole book either, right? Like, let, let people read the book, right? We we could have went through it like chapter by chapter, each point you make, but you know, let, mm-hmm. let people let people read the book. Yeah, sure. Um. I do know. I did notice one mistake that stuck out. I think you had the uh, for ring size. You had the current one at seventeen instead of sixteen. So you might you might want to 
change that for the Monero community. <laughs> Slaughter okay. Reddit. <laughs> okay. That's that's a fair. That's a yeah. fair one. Um but again, that's a good example of things that we'll update because I believe, yep. um, like the ring size is going to be uh, increased with Seraphos, I believe, to a hundred. Sure. And Luke Parker was talking about uh, having an unlimited ring size as well. Yeah, you, you obviously proof. didn't go into any of that, which I don't. Bl- you know, I mean, you can you got to stop somewhere, right? You can't. You can't you'll never finish. Well, the book. It's always developing as well. Like that was when I was yeah, writing that chapter. Yeah. The full chain membership proofs didn't exist, for example. Right. right. Um, but yeah, and it's one of those things is, does it, this is the question I ask myself with a lot too, is does it actually back up the sort of thesis that I'm trying to provide, which is proof of work and privacy is a basis for freedom and prosperity and how it sort of fixes the current problems. Right. Like you, you didn't go into the criticisms really of ring signatures. You didn't get into all that, no. right? Like the Eve, Alice Eve attack and how, uh, yeah. Yeah, cause yeah, I, I I understand why. I understand why. But those, I, yeah. I could see people that are going to be like, might bring that up, right? Especially those that aren't, you know, or that are critical of Monero might point out that you didn't bring up all of Monero's flaws. But I think the, mm-hmm. given your thesis, it didn't necessarily make sense to like focus in on, on those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. it's very, there's a lot of things you can sort of go on tangents about. Right. And maybe right. I'll, maybe I'll, uh, even do that one day you know go on a really extended 500 page version of it who knows because you really could this is the thing i noticed too is you can really write a a whole book about pretty much every chapter so it's kind of trying to take the key concepts and build an entire case together that was sort of my main focus right yeah you could do a whole breaking monero series right like uh, as which obviously has been done yeah you can do a whole book on the history of money. You do a whole book on the fiat ponzi. You do a whole book on revolutionary cycles, which is chapter three. Of course, technocracy, globalism, etc., etc., etc. Bitcoin versus Monero, etc. You can do a whole book on it. Right, but what's nice is you, you tied it all together. Right. Um. All right, man. Yeah, I, th- I think this is good. Uh, we did an hour. I, I recommend. I recommend people check it out for sure. What is the website again? So www.monerostandard.com. Dot com and you can pay with Monero, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum. Um, so yeah, MoneroStandard.com. Very simple website. You can't pay with Zcash? You can pay with Zcash. Oh, you yes. can pay with you said, okay. yeah. yeah. Maybe we get rid of that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought about it. I don't think anyone's actually paid in Zcash yet. I've had, obviously, mainly Monero. Well, it, it would be a great sign if we have Zcash people buying the book to check it out. Like, wait. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's a warm crowd, so to say. They're already in the privacy space. They already see the value of privacy coins. Sure. sure. So I don't know how they got the Zcash over Monero in the first place, but it's so-called a hot lead. So maybe we can even make a community fund to get out to Zcash's first, then, uh, you know, curious Bitcoin maxis. Because I think that's also a big um, a big market that's going to be curious in the, you know, short to midterm future as well. Is We already see it. You know, Bitcoin is sort of very Monero curious already. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's another thing. You didn't really start comparing Monero to all other privacy coins. There's no mm-hmm. Monero versus other privacy coins chapter, which, like you said, that would yeah. be a whole another can of worms. Right. That's kind of going into that like real, uh, what I would call like nerdy part of it. You know, just yeah. going into the real technicals and maths of it, which is kind of antithetical to the point. Doesn't really right. back up anything. It just bores everybody. Right. All right, buddy. Thank you so much. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having um, me. We'll we'll leave it there. Cheers, man. Thanks so much, Doug. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. 
You can find and subscribe to our show on YouTube, Odyssey, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to MoneroTalk.live to subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we are always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.